There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tipping no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day, Mark Kenny here from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. And with another week of democracy sausage, of course, as we edge gingerly towards the end of the year, one Greek letter at a time, it seems. In fact, it struck me this morning that in just two months, Scott Morrison has gone from humiliating the French president to taking the government back out of our lives and perhaps now to stepping back into our lives, or if you like, from Omicron to Omicron. But I suppose he has to do something. Parliament has proved to be a bit of a disaster because the government, unlike its predecessors, is really a government in name only. The paucity of its legislative ambition reflects its lack of purpose generally. As I said, the final two sitting weeks of 2021 have gone pretty badly for Morrison's government, largely because doesn't really have too much of a to-do list, at least not legislatively speaking. One result is that the opposition and the crossbenchers move to fill the vacuum, and another is that the government casts about looking for meaning and purpose, sometimes finding it in ideological ephemera like its bill to create a specific right for religious people to keep on discriminating as a matter of belief. What a can of worms that is. While Australia has had a hard time in recent years, lunging from devastating drought to deadly bushfires and then on to the pandemic, politically at least, Morrison has been quite lucky. He was lucky to come through the middle of the Abbott-Turnbull Wars, lucky to win an election in 2019 he himself called a miracle, and he's been lucky in a way that some of the big stories that have happened have crowded out the negative stories that the government's had to deal with, like the sexism problems in politics, sports, rorts and car parks. All governments have indulged in what is called pork barrelling, but this government seems to have taken it to a new level. Let me bring in my regular partner here, Dr Maria Tafaga, from the School of Politics and International Relations at ANU. Howdy there, Maria. Hello, everyone. How are you? Really good to have you back, of course. Um, now, also with us are two highly respected scholars, 
Ian McAllister is Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the Australian National University's School of Politics and International Relations, with which Maria is associated, and indeed am I, and one of Australia's most respected political academics, and he's also the lead of the long-running Australian election study. Welcome back, Ian. Hello, Mark. And another well-known political scientist joins us for the first time, Professor Anne Tiernan from the Griffith Business School at Griffith University, and welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. And your research focuses on things like governing and policy, but also you're interested in uh, in, in kind of pretty arcane uh, concepts like the, or what seems arcane to some people anyway, the, the concept of caretaker conventions. And I guess we'll be thinking a bit about that before not too long as uh, the once the election is called. I'm pretty interested in integrity and accountability too. Well, that's good because integrity and accountability is uh, is very much what we're sort of, uh, you know, it frames what we're talking about here today because, of course, uh, pork barrelling is very much seen uh, within that rubric. Um, Maria, before we get to this new uh, paper that Ian has co-authored on pork barrelling, pork barrelling itself is pretty old, isn't it? It's been around pretty much since politics has been around. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and the the term pork barrelling I'm pretty sure refers to – the US politics, um, particularly to do with the way that uh, votes um, and party machines used to sort of uh, give out spoils to um, their supporters because, of course, voting at that time was not secret, um, so everyone could see how you voted. Yeah, and uh, it, it sort of makes sense in a way, doesn't it? I mean, uh, you, you've got to um, – the governments are going to uh, promise things and then they're going to try and deliver for them and get the credit for, for that delivery and, uh, and, and, and be re-elected again. It's kind of an inevitable process, one imagines, but uh, nonetheless, you can build rules around it. Ian, you found in this paper that you've uh, co-authored with Andrew Lee, the uh, Federal Labor MP, in this jurisdiction here in the ACT, uh, you found that pork barrelling is pretty rife, which is, as we know, quite quite well known. But um, you've also found that it's possibly more trouble than it's worth because it doesn't necessarily work. That's indeed what we find. We were particularly interested in doing some research on this because the the Sport Australia grants, uh, normally with uh, these incidents of uh, pork barrelling, you know how grants have been allocated, but you don't necessarily know which have been allocated based on merit and which have been allocated based on political influence. So the the data set that was leaked to the ABC was really quite unique in that regard. So we were interested in analysing that to see what extent uh, politically influenced grants affected the vote. What we found was, well, firstly, that there was bias in how the grants were allocated. No surprises there because there was a very extensive, very detailed, very comprehensive report by the Auditor General. And that's what was found in that report. But what we really wanted to do was to see what the electoral consequences of it would be. And much to our surprise, we find there was no electoral consequences. And we we literally could not find any. We looked at the types of grants, the amounts, the number of grants. We looked at particular type of electorates and there was zero effect. So it was a bit of a a mystery to us at the beginning when we looked at it. 
Yeah, so this is actually a really neat little paper and um, and it's sort of in, in, in two parts. Ian, can you kind of tell um, our listeners um, what's the difference between, I guess, your, your swing and core voter theories and, and how they sort of played out in terms of what you were looking at in terms of the data? Well, the, the two major hypotheses we had in terms of the effect of grants on particular electorates, one was that Grants were allocated to support core voters, so these would be something like the spoils of office. So when your party got into office, it would be able to distribute goodies, money, grants, things like that to your core supporters. So it would really shore up your support. The other hypothesis we had was that grants would be allocated to try and tempt swing voters, people who weren't rusted on to the other party, to actually come and support your side. So we went into the analysis looking at that. Um, We did very extensive analysis on this. And indeed, when we find zero electoral effect, we thought there must be a software error. There might be an error in the data, something like that. We spent many weeks checking everything. And we came to the conclusion that there was zero effect. It's probably fair to say that There has been a bit of research on this in the past because, um, as Maria mentioned early on, there has been instances of pork barrelling with the the Labour governments going back into the 1990s. People have done research on that. Andrew Lee did some research himself. So did David Denimark at the University of West Australia. But they weren't able to look at the electoral effects because they didn't have the, the richness of the data set that we had. Yeah, I mean, one of the major strengths of what you were able to do is is that because you actually had the color-coded spreadsheet that was read into Hansard, you were actually able to distinguish what was actually a political grant, right, which is which is different from from other research. I, what I found really interesting about your, your, your paper, and I guess might be interesting for you to sort of reflect on, is why, why it is that politicians do this, um, even though you found no effect. Well, we, we tried to explain this in two ways. Um, one was basically the demand side. So a possible explanation is that voters have a very low opinion of politicians. They just think this is normal behaviour. So they don't really take much interest in it. So if there's very large grants come into a particular marginal electorate, it doesn't really impinge very much on their electoral behaviour. And we find in the Australian election study surveys that the proportion of people who think that politicians look after themselves has really been uh, increasing incrementally over the last 20 years or so. And in the most recent survey we did in 2019, we find that three out of every four people we interviewed believed that politicians looked after themselves, that there's really no trust in the political class. But on the supply side, parliamentarians pretty clearly overestimate the effect of these grants on the vote. And Andrew Lee ran a a straw poll of 14 parliamentarians, uh, and he asked them a question about the effect on the vote if about half a million dollars came in via a grant into their electorate. There was nobody of that 14 who said it would have a negative effect. There was two who said it would have a zero effect but the other 12 said it would have some effect. And the median uh, proportion of the vote was about one, one and a half percent. So virtually all of the parliamentarians thought there was an effect for these grants. 
And I, I don't suppose this is surprising in a way, but I wonder whether 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 I mean whether this data analyzing it this way can um, can uncover the sort of um, the obverse that is the MP who fails to secure any grants. If it's if it is expected that MPs will you know feather bed their electorates if they can, and that they're all you know they're trying to represent their electors. So obviously winning money from from Canberra in the case of federal MPs is is something that MPs are kind of you know it's it's normal normal behaviour for them. I wonder if we should be surprised that it doesn't show up as in, in a great positive sense, but it might show up in a negative sense if an MP is thought to be a useless log who doesn't get any money for his or her electorate. I'm sure that's true, uh, Mark, uh, that that could be the case. But I think the other thing that we that's really interesting and topical in terms of the great work that Ian's done is that the Commonwealth's the only jurisdictions where you'd have to go through this kind of exercise to get to the bottom of what had happened in terms of the allocation of of grants um, in the in the absence of the Federal Integrity Commission. So, uh, you know, it's in lots of other jurisdictions with stronger oversight arrangements, uh, you can you can get to the bottom of schemes that don't look like um, that they're kosher and haven't uh, afforded, you know, accorded with the rules. doesn't mean, you know, there's no pork barrelling, of course, but it's just, you know, as we've seen, you know, on an industrial scale in New South Wales as well. Um, but, you know, you do have to, you do have to account for it at some point and it can be referred uh, for investigation. But it doesn't necessarily break any laws. Uh, I mean, it no, no, it doesn't necessarily break any laws. And I mean, I think that's this is what's really interesting here in terms of um, the the trust kind of um, deficit that you know Ian's traced so comprehensively in the Australian election study. Um, you know, this actually has negative effects. So it might be that you don't bring anything home to your electorates in safe seats, and there's issues around that. Uh, of course, but you know the fact. I think it. I think it really bears out this tendency to govern only for the people who you think support you, or through marginal seats. And I think that's a pretty big recipe uh, for cynicism, um, and and maybe the the trust impact uh, is something that people should consider more. But I'm sure um, those uh, those um, MPs whose uh, who, whose uh, electorates didn't appear on the spreadsheet or who didn't get a car park, yeah. um, you know, were pretty disappointed and, and asking themselves the question. Um, of course, some of those seats that they did go to were pretty safe. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's, it's, it is quite interesting to, to uh, see the seats that it did go to and why they went to them. We're not really surprised about it, but as you say, Ian, the, the really extraordinary thing about the revelation with what became known as sports rorts in, in, in media shorthand anyway was that there was, uh, um, you know, you could look at all of those applications and see which ones were allocated and you could see by virtue of a very handily colour-coded spreadsheet, you could actually see the consideration that uh, government was making as to where those monies were going to be allocated based on very much, not an absolute match, but very strongly influenced by whether they were marginal seats or seats the coalition uh, uh, wanted to reward. Yes, no, I think that's exactly right. And we did look at the, some of the seats where they got large numbers of grants, large amounts of money and so on. There was a very strong incumbency effect there, which is sort of what you'd expect. So if you had a long-standing incumbent who knew how to do these various things, then there was a benefit to the electorate. The other thing we found, which is hardly a surprise, was that 
a lot of these grants disproportionately went to national party seats and liberal national seats in Queensland. Yes, so regional seats, yeah. Absolutely. So again, going back in time, the research that was done in the 1990s showed this very clearly that um, the National Party was very much uh, getting a lot of grants that uh, possibly they shouldn't have based on the merit of it. I mean, what we did find in terms of the 680 odd grants that were actually funded, we find that based on the Sport Australia rating, 272 of those were based on merit, but actually just over 400 were not. So there was more grants apparently awarded based on political influence than based on merit. Which is a shocking finding. And, but a potential um, you know, new supply-side theory, right, or hypothesis in terms of is this what the role of the Prime Minister's office has become? Um, to you know, to oversee and do things in this way, it's a you know, it's another potential explanation, I guess. And this happened. Uh, a lot of these grants happened. I mean, the, the the role of the prime minister's office has been denied and downplayed, and all kinds of all kinds of ways. Essentially, we're led to believe that the prime minister had no personal involvement in this, and it's always you know, it's it's been a pretty unsatisfactory process, but. After the sports sports things come out, we, we had the uh, revelations about the car parks fund, which is an even bigger sum, bigger aggregate of money. And I'm really interested in this because it does go, it does sort of uh, intersect with the caretaker period, with election campaigning and the like. One of the justifications that put up in the car park case is it didn't did is that these grants didn't need or these uh, funding allocations didn't need any objective. Uh, consideration by against criteria or by the objective public service because they were election promises. That's it's um, a pretty creative way of putting it, I suppose. But many people would say, "Oh well, MP stands up uh, at a, at, a, at an event, promises as part of his or her campaign in that seat that they'll deliver um, uh, uh, money for a particular project that's going to relieve congestion in the area." Delivering that then becomes a matter of uh, of, of of bond of uh, you know the, the MP's word being his or her honour. Yeah, that's right, and um, and also the the uh, more innovative tactic, if you like, of consulting with um, candidates about things yes. that would be elected. So you know, really, it's it's you know, I mean, I think there are laws. I think there are names for it, aren't they? Uh, aren't there? Sort of, you know, vote for us or else you don't get this thing that our candidate promised with their fake check even though they were a candidate. So, uh, and then I think this, so I think this is, um, you know, it's just uh, hyper-partisanship um, and, you know, fuels all the cynicism that we've kind of talked about. But then it leaves the government on the other side with the delivery problem. So you have a bad process, you don't use criteria, and then you're accounting not only for the fact that, you know, this was, um, these promises were made, but then that they're not delivered. And so then, you know, fuels the, you're not delivering kind of problem. Um, so I think in lots of ways, you know, um, the Commonwealth is now the only parliament without a fixed term period. There's been some, um, you know, real extraordinary lack of restraint shown uh, before the 2019 election. I see no evidence um, of anything that suggests that that will be less the case in the lead up to 2022. And I just think it's really concerning. In fixed term parliaments, 
you know, the, the caretaker period or the reminder for people to stop weaponizing incumbency, uh, you know, happens about, about three months out or even six months out, knowing, you know, on appointments and that kind of thing, knowing that, uh, that the caretaker period will begin. So, you know, I think this is a really significant problem in the Commonwealth jurisdiction and it's no surprise that the, the trust data is showing up the way it is in the, in the AES. Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, Ian, in your paper, you actually start uh, discussing this whole problem uh, by citing the case of Georgina Downer in the seat of Mayo in the 2019 election campaign. And I think Anne was, uh, this was the the case Anne was referring to uh, before we took a break then uh, also, uh, because it was, it was, it was quite a sort of a emblematic uh, of the, of the, of the broader problem here, not only was this a case of, um, you know, effectively pork barrelling to try and win a, a seat, win back a seat that had been a, a coalition jewel for a Liberal jewel in the Adelaide Hills for a long time, and there was Georgina Downer, daughter of uh, the former member Alexander Downer, seeking to do that. But Georgina Downer fronted up at an event with this huge novelty check. I think it was for about one hundred and twenty-seven thousand uh, dollars, with the party logo and her picture on it. it was I don't know, two-metre check or something ridiculous like that, as these novelty checks are, she's doing it as the candidate, not as the MP, which really, you know, bells the cat about how cynical this whole process is. And I guess that's the sort of thing. It's one of the more egregious cases of, of not, not even really trying to hide what is going on here, public dollars effectively being used uh, to, uh, to campaign and garner votes. I think that's right. That was the event that really started off the inquiry. There was a a formal complaint made that stimulated the Auditor General's report. And then, of course, various things started to come out. And uh, as I mentioned before, the Auditor General's report is really very comprehensive. They had access to all sorts of data and they were able to go back and look at how grants were allocated and so on. Of course, they didn't look at the electoral effects because that really wasn't their job. I suppose the sort of thing that interests me is how this will feed into the next election, which is what Anne was sort of alluding to before. One of the things we find in the election study surveys is that the sort of personal qualities that voters rate in leaders is leadership and integrity. So they're much less interested in things like competence, intelligence, compassion, 
leadership qualities like that. Something like this and a series of scandals, as we've seen in, in various other ways across the states and territories, really does undermine integrity. I suppose the thing that might save the coalition at the next election from losing votes over this is that voters are so cynical now, they probably think that both parties do it. So really, uh, there's not much to be gained or lost in the whole process. And Maria, that's a very good point, isn't it? I mean, we, we've talked about this, um, you know, that very corrosive reduction. We often hear where people say, oh, all politicians lie, and it really just obscures the, the gravity that should be attached to, you know, some quite significant lies that are told. Um, once we accept that all politicians, you know, once we decide that all politicians lie, then, uh, you know, no- nothing's uh, all that um, all that serious. And we might have the same problem here that... Uh, this is a process, as I said at the start, it's as old as politics, really. Um, uh, plus, I think a lot of people would probably say, well, look, I want my MP to be fighting for my area. We, we all remember, for example, someone like Brian Harradine, the, um, the senator for Tasmania, who was, who was lauded, really, for his uh, you know, quite uh, single-minded pursuit of securing money for his electorate. His electorate, being a senator, was the whole of Tasmania, but... He, he made no secret of trying to secure a better deal all the time for Tasmania. Some many voters actually like that kind of um, that kind of you know loyalty to the to their particular constituents. I, so I, I guess I think that um, you're that you're you're right in the sense that we are kind of in danger of people pricing in this kind of um, mm. behaviour because they've seen it um, many times. But I, I actually do. Um, I guess I sort of wonder or I have a hunch um, that partisanship probably interacts with this pretty pretty heavily. So if you're if you're voting for the party that is currently engaging in uh, you know the, the corruption right the, the incumbent, then you're probably more likely to say stuff like, well, all parties kind of do that. Um, or if you're leaning towards voting for that that party, where I think this is actually, um, kind of interesting is the way that these integrity issues are really fueling um, these independent candidates from um, often older women who are leading uh, these voices of or independence candidates in traditional blue ribbon seats, right, in, in coalition party seats, because they are disturbed and upset about um, the the lack of um, good governance because it's it's you know like it, you know in, integrity I think um, as Ian sort of said is you know one of those leadership measures that are considered important um, by voters because it goes to character right it goes to whether or not you can keep your your promises and 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 your intention right you might be incompetent but at least you're trying um, but I think one of the kind of risks that has sort of emerged and we sort of see this with the the car park um, scandal in particular is that you know, like competence and and integrity are now coming into into question, and it kind of links up with a bunch of negatives that the government has simply by virtue of being quite an old um, government. And and the fact that, like, I guess I just I'm not convinced people really care about um, or would change their vote based on the fact that a car park is being built in the local area. I, I just. I just I want to know who that voter is who suddenly thinks yes that's going to make a really big difference particularly when they are you know often in um, uh, fairly safe seats um, or in in marginal 
in marginal seats. I, I just don't think the number of voters out there who would switch parties is is that high. Well, I think uh, you're on the money there, if I can put it that crassly, if crassly is a word, um, because that's really what uh, Ian's data points up, that <laughs> it isn't having that much effect. It is having an impact, I think, in a different way. I mean, I agree with all of that. I think it's very interesting that Dominic Perrottet, having inherited, you know, pork barrelling is normalised with all of the revelations from um, the New South Wales ICAC, has ordered a review of the extent mm. to which that's a, that's the case. Now, that might be the opportunity afforded by John Barillaro leaving as, as, as coalition partner, you know, leader. But I think the deterrence effect um, is quite interesting uh, in, in New South Wales. Um, and I think, you know, much, it reminds me actually, just listening to Maria, it reminds me of the way that the Howard government accumulated a whole series of negatives around um, integrity that really started to build from 2001 to 2004, but then really came home in 2007. Um, so maybe it takes time, but mm. I do think that that suite of negatives does uh, does and can accumulate. Um, that, that's a really interesting point because Howard himself used, remember that term he used to use, uh, barnacles on the ship, and he would, they would scrape a few barnacles off to get to an election to, uh, uh, you know, give them a better chance. And and perhaps these are the kinds of things that eventually, as you say, and just slow the whole thing down. That eventually make the uh, the, the the vessel of government, this this government, um, uh, just uh, nowhere near as efficient as it used to be because it's carrying all these uh, accumulated uh, deficits from from things that it's done wrong. If, if we remember that memorable phrase of Kevin Rudd's during the ALP launch in the 2007 campaign, this reckless spending must stop. Mm. And and I mean, and that's the point, right? Like, I think I think often this is sort of discussed in like a kind of kind of trivial kind of way, like what will be the electoral impact? Do punters care? You know, the awful language of, you know, punters and, and, yeah. and voter land, right? But these are actually these are actually public monies. These are these are foregone opportunities. These are monies that are effectively being wasted in in a gross and unethical kind of way that could be actually spent on stuff that's good, right? If we if we think about um, how much the the minister for families, Anne Rustin, reminded us is being spent on domestic violence by this government, I think she said it was one point one billion dollars. That's with a B. Well, if we look at the accumulated sports rorts, the swimming pool thing, safety water, safety one, and the car parks, like that's eight hundred million dollars with an M, right? That's that's actually not that much less. Um, some of these car parks will never be built. Some of these uh, toilet blocks were not required. Um, you know, these are these are this is actually your money um, that is that is being wasted. And and part of it is the, the why this conversation happens this way is because I think the 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 way these are covered journalistically, too too much emphasis is placed on pork barreling as a, a political tool or a, a, a tool in the armory kit and not enough on the actual substance of the actual spending, right? And in trivialising um, these this lack of good governance and accountability processes, you, you know, journalists are kind of playing into this uh, playing into the politicians' kind of game that it actually might matter about pork barrelling, that you know voters like like this stuff, or that it gives them some kind of advantage, and it feeds voter cynicism, right? Because well, it doesn't matter. They're you know they're all like that, or you know I, it doesn't really matter who I vote for. Um, and and when I go and look at the mainstream media, I'm not seeing them holding an elite 
to account, right? I'm I'm seeing them effectively affirming what this elite is already kind of doing. And I think that's actually like the sort of biggest story that we've got going on here over the decade, which is, you know, we, we kind of got one set of elites that is not really doing the job that it used to do for another set of elites, which is to hold it to account. Mm, yeah, it's a good point. Uh, Ian, you mentioned uh, the uh, you know strong allocation of monies to regional seats, for example. Um, I wonder whether uh, your your uh, analysis can measure things like the, the way the, the well for, for a start the just the simple announcement value of some of these grants. Uh, you've done uh, a bit of work on that. You you uh, come up with uh, two frames, which is media release theory and check size theory. What does what does your uh, research show there? Well, we really didn't find any effect there, but it's probably worth mentioning that. The way we did the analysis, we were looking at the changes in the vote within electorates. So we weren't able to drill down to ordinary voters and actually ask them what yeah. they thought about the whole process. What Maria was saying before about uh, misuse of public money and so on is very interesting because we're talking about sports rorts and car parks and things like that. But of course, there's a whole range of other things where government can redistribute resources Things like membership of statutory authorities, diplomatic postings, a whole range of things where I would have thought sports rorts and things like that were really probably just the tip of the iceberg. And both sides of politics basically do it. The problem, I think, in that behind all of this is the rise of the career politician, which is really altogether a, a new topic. Because what we've seen in Australian elections is that there's an ever-decreasing ideological and policy difference between the two major parties. But at the same time, we've seen a much greater increase in very intense partisan debate. That's actually happened in a range of countries, not just in Australia. So the problem there, I think, is that uh, career politicians are in there to win, and they're not particularly interested in looking after the, the, the management of public monies. But, but just going on that, uh, that point about uh, media release theory and check size theory, I mean, essentially those two, uh, those two theories for your analysis uh, were the media release theory was sort of um, the, the value you get from perhaps a, a number of smaller grants. I think you compared, uh, for example, or you, you cited the difference between, say, two grants of $10,000 to two community organisations in an electorate versus the... Uh, versus the single grant of $20,000 that might go to a, a sporting club or whatever. And obviously, in the latter case, the, the, the larger quantum could allow for a more substantial uh, improvement in amenity in a particular club or whatever it might be. But the other one, uh, the, the former one, the, the two $10,000 checks might allow for two different appearances in the local pages of the, uh, in the, pages of the local press. Um, so I guess, and, 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 the criteria might be different as well, depending on the on the size. But you, you say you don't discern any difference in terms of the overall political. No, we really didn't find very much of a difference in that. Um, again, I think a lot of these were directed to sporting groups and things like that. So they were improving, say, lighting after dark or change facilities. So I rather suspect a lot of these things were affecting relatively small groups of voters, and they probably expected that 
these things would happen anyway at one point or another. So it really didn't affect their view of uh, politics and how they would vote in the 2019 election. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that interested me is that you've done this paper with a former ANU academic who is now himself a member of parliament, so presumably is engaged in representing, you know, sporting clubs and so forth within his area, this being Andrew Lee. Um, not not specifically going to, to his role here, but I, I wonder whether you considered, uh, the two of you considered as you were writing this, the sort of political process, like, uh, the granular process within an electorate, uh, particularly for a regional MP, it might be about keeping the mayor or mayors essentially happy, uh, might be having good relations with the local chamber of commerce, with the, uh, you know, the, the, the chairs of the, of, the, of the major sporting teams, the principals of the local school. These people are kept essentially happy, uh, if I can put it in that broad way, um, by an MP who's in their fight, seem to be in there fighting for the local community and scoring the odd parcel of dough for, for this or that project. And the word of mouth value, you can imagine, works quite well. Now, that may not so much show up as a spike in votes, but it might it might stop a slump in votes that that MP might otherwise get, particularly if the broader party for whom that MP is a member is travelling badly, is about to be tossed out of power, for example. Is it sensitive enough to, to, to look at that effect? And not in terms of the, the data set that we've got. We did talk a bit about possibly opinion leaders within the electorate, maybe party activists might be more influenced than other people. It was not something that we could really measure with the sort of data that we had. It would require a different methodology. Now, we did find that there was an incumbency effect, so it was pretty clear that an incumbent uh, was more likely to get grants and so on for his or her electorate. But in terms of drilling down into that and looking at the local context and so on, it really wasn't something that we could do. Yeah. And just uh, just finally... Um there's been a hell of a lot of uh, attention on all of this this term, much more so, I suppose, than is normally the case because we've had these quite egregious examples. Any thoughts about whether that in itself is going to have a sobering effect on parties? I mean, as, as we all know, we're heading into a, an election. It's very, things look like they're very finely balanced. Do you expect that will have a sobering effect or will we, or will we subsequently learn that this whole no, practice I wish I I wish I could say I thought there was going to be a sobering effect, Mark. But I think already um, the appointments um, have begun. The appointment of of people, you know, to key roles has begun. Um, the un uh, the from decisions made but not announced are sort of totaled up in the in the budget and ready to go. Um, I think I think it's going to be all out. And I think you know the desperation. Uh, the government thought it was going to lose in 2019, so you know all bets were off. Um, but I think it's the same in 2022, which is just indicative of of how corrosive this stuff is. Interestingly, Bridget Archer, member for the marginal Tasmanian seat of Bass breaks ranks last week to vote on the integrity and accountability issue with the independence and the crossbench. So it, it's very interesting that some of those marginal seat holders might actually think, you know, the, the money is is with that rather than with more yeah. um, large S for the electorate. I thought that was a really interesting development last week. Um, but, Absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's just, you know, it's just so cynical and it's so um, corrosive to, to our 
um, to trust. And and I just think that all those community organisations who did apply and who now know that that's how it worked and that they were never in the game, you know, it will be interesting to see if they're a force to be reckoned with in, in 2022 as well. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really interesting point. And, and to Maria's point, uh, just a, a sort of a final question, to Maria's point about uh, these uh, independents, the voices for and so forth that are showing up, these are, it's almost like this is the the sort of liberal moderates, mostly female wing on the outside of the Liberal Party that's uh, really saying, well, it's not, it's not, we haven't left the party, you know, the party's left us and, um, and they're standing up for these integrity issues, they're standing up for climate, they're standing up for conscientious moral representation uh, in, in politics and it's going to be fascinating to see if there are some, um, if there's an aggregate effect of this, but also if there are some surprises in this coming election. I think that's absolutely right and very strong on corporate governance, right? Many of them coming from business backgrounds going, this just isn't good governance. I think that that debate, you know, is going to be really interesting. Maria? Yeah, I, I think I guess what is, a, I guess, an irony of of some of these campaigns is, is that some of the arguments made that, that are not around sort of climate or integri- integrity issues are around, you know, make this seat marginal so we get attention, so we get... Yeah. You know, so we get this sort of largesse, and and that is actually kind of the the end point of um, treating the public purse as as an election kitty, um, or as sort of treating um, this as just sort of an input on a chessboard rather than the very serious exercise of serving the public in the public interest and the public good. Yeah, it's a very good point to end on. Um, thanks very much, Maria, and thanks to Ian McAllister and Anne Tiernan. Really terrific to have you both uh, on Democracy Sausage. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. And that's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week uh, for another couple of episodes before the end of the year. And, of course, next year it's going to be, looks like it's going to be on for young and old. Uh, we know, for example, that there's only 10 scheduled sitting days between well, after this week between now and the uh, and, and the middle of the year, which is really quite extraordinary and underlines the point I was making at the beginning that really we don't see much in the way of an agenda from this government other than getting through the election, which is really what the religious uh, discrimination bill, as it's erroneously called, and uh, and and the, the late listing of uh, some sort of ICAC bill, uh, federal ICAC bill, uh, neither of which are likely to come to a vote, but which uh, have been suddenly put on the agenda as if they're urgent after three years. Uh, that's what that's about. It's about, I think someone described it to me the other day as legislation rather than legislation. It's designed to uh, give the government something to talk about and um, and perhaps to say that we'd deliver this if the, if, the, if the Labor Party was for it as well, but they're not for it and uh, therefore you have to re-elect us. We'll see how all of that goes, but uh, that's for another time. That's Democracy Sausage for now. Look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye. Thank you.